Welcome to the DigiSoc podcast. My name is David Geerts, and in this podcast I will be interviewing researchers from the KU Leuven Digital Society Institute about how their research contributes to a positive digital society. Today I am talking to Sean Smith. Sean joined the Department of Social and Cultural Anthropology at KU Leuven in October 2021 as an FWO Junior Postdoctoral Fellow. He completed his PhD in the School of English at the University of Hong Kong in uh, 2021, where his thesis focused on the influence of tourism discourses and imaginaries in the development of new tourism destinations with a case study in Myanmar. This autumn, he will be joining Tilburg University as an assistant professor in the Department of Cultural Studies. In today's episode, we will talk with Sean about his postdoc research on if and how social media transforms the way we think about nature. Welcome, Sean. Thanks very much, David. All right, so this is a very broad topic, uh, uh, a bit vague maybe for people to understand. Sure. How does social media transform the way we think about nature? So can you mm -hmm. first briefly explain a bit uh, what is your research uh, about? And how will it or does it contribute to a positive digital society? Yeah, absolutely. So what I mean by how we think about nature is that conceptions of nature, or we can say the more than human world, all these aspects of the world that you know we don't necessarily build through technological apparatuses that we would associate with you know, modern industry, um, these are very culturally contextual. So us sitting here in Belgium, the way that we conceive of places like forests or mountains or rivers, that is very culturally informed and could be related to our own individual histories, our families, uh, the kinds of places that we grew up in. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's not the only way that people think about nature. And we are simultaneously seeing that people are using platforms uh, like so, like Instagram or TikTok, and you can kind of name many of them, that are helping people connect to nature in new ways. So what I really focused on with this project is how one particular context, uh, that is Oman, which is a country in the Arabian Gulf, mm -hmm. um, how people there are seeking to connect to nature through digital technologies. Uh, the app that I've been working with the most is Instagram. That's mm -hmm. the most, you could say, popular uh, among most people, uh, besides WhatsApp, of course. Um, and that is helping forge these connections with nature uh, in a way that I would argue is different than we might see taking place over here in Western Europe, mm -hmm. because locally the, the contextually informed ideas and concepts of nature are very different uh, than those that we might have grown up with in Belgium and me in the United States. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, uh, yeah that's already um, uh, a very nice explanation, but also asking for more details, which, mm -hmm. which we'll go into in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, first, another question related uh, to, to what I mentioned is mm -hmm. like, can you already briefly say what you hope that your research would contribute to, to society and to what we then call a positive digital society. Right, absolutely. Well, I suppose you could think about it in terms of how is society being platformized in the Anthropocene. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is that environmental concerns are so pressing for people all over the world in every kind of context. We have climate change, biodiversity loss, um, all kinds of transformations of, of nature, of the more than human environment that are ma- that are making life increasingly untenable for human species and all non-human species as well. Mm-hmm. So the way that we interact with nature through digital technologies has a great deal of import when it comes to combating climate change, to finding ways for societies to undertake sustainable transitions, uh, moving towards a post-oil future. Mm -hmm. Uh, So really the way that we take pictures and post them on Instagram, while it might seem trivial, has a lot to do with the way that people imagine nature Mm -hmm. and how supportive they might be of global sustainable transitions for making some kind of sacrifices in uh, in the effort of finding a way out of uh, you know the specter of four degrees warming. So looking at really the minutia of our digital media practices, I want to argue, is really important for how we think about um, how life is going to continue in the Anthropocene era. Uh, uh, can, can you briefly explain what the Anthropocene era means? Absolutely. So the Anthropocene is this term that was formed um, actually by uh, a chemical biologist, I think it was a chemical biologist and, um, uh, and, and a microbiologist, Paul Critzen and somebody else around 2002. Basically, uh, the Anthropocene is a, it, it means that the world has become entirely affected by humanity's impact. Mm-hmm. So previously we were living in the Holocene, which is this geological age, um, about it's been measured for about the past 10,000, 12,000 years, ever since the last ice age. And since then, it's been possible to uh, grow crops in a wide degree of latitudes, um, for life to exist and flourish in the way that we know it now. However, what people are calling the Anthropocene recognizes that either from the past 50 years, from the past maybe 500 years, humanity has impacted the systems of life on Earth. Uh, so much that we can actually see the impact of humanity in geological strata. So when you take a cross-section of the Earth, for instance, and you see all of these different layers Mm -hmm. of different sediments, we can actually see where humanity began to impact the Earth by the layer of carbon um, from all of the coal and the forests that have been burnt. Uh, in the past 500 years. It's important to note with the Anthropocene that there's a lot of other alternative terms, um, capitalocene, for instance, or plantationocene. Mm-hmm. Basically, these ways of looking at how human systems have uh, changed the condition of life for uh, for, uh, for all organisms yeah, on Earth. Yeah, yeah. So that's interesting then, because indeed what you mentioned in in um, the way what, you, what you're studying is that the seemingly trivial, as you mentioned it, like, pictures that we take of nature and that we post, you argue that it really has a more profound impact uh, than we might think. Um, is, is that the case? Right. And what I mean by that is that if we take, uh, if, I, if I go to Switzerland, for instance, and I take a picture of mountains and I post that on my Instagram, uh, and I hope that it, get li- that it gets likes, mm-hmm. I hope that maybe I'll get a few new followers, Uh, What I'm engaging with there is a particular concept of nature, a framing of nature that is being upscaled through the infrastructures of a social media app like Instagram. This way that I conceive of nature is suddenly viewable to all of my followers and 
maybe I would hope as many more as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, however, these particular ways of gazing at nature have ideological implications. So if you mentioned this early, maybe we can discuss this, mm-hmm. this now. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, so we can think of, of the way that people think about nature in the Western world. And I'm going to paint in very broad strokes here. Um, the edges, the parameters of this world are fuzzy. Uh, so we should always see how it is not sort of one West and one sort of non-Western space. But if we continue with this, the Western way of looking at nature um, grows out of a uh, Abrahamic religious tradition uh, in which nature uh, came to be seen as something that is exterior to quote-unquote civilization. Mm-hmm. There is a binary, which many people uh, have theorized, between nature and society. So what we're doing here in this uh, recording studio at K. Leuven is something that is different from nature. We are not now part of nature. We are part of civilization or we are part of, uh, we are mm-hmm. part of society. Now, this particular formation has taken root globally as uh, the Western world has colonized other as other parts of the world. Um, certainly, there are different forms of colonialism that took place in the Arabian Gulf, likewise in the Americas, um, uh, really every continent on, on, on the planet. And this way of looking at nature as something that is separate from uh, humanity, separate from society, has become what we can think of as a hegemonic discursive formation. This overwhelming way uh, of looking at the world where other people are unable to uh, necessarily voice indigenous ways of looking at the world, which might be very different from this nature-society binary. Yeah, and you called it what, a hegemonic discursive A hegemonic formation. discursive formation. I'm drawing on this idea that of, of what Foucault thinks of as a, as a discursive formation. And that means a um, particular way of seeing the world that is enforced, encouraged, and sustained through power structures. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just me as the person uh, going to take a picture of a mountain, but it's me as a white male Western person who lives in a country like Belgium, which has a particular um, historical and present-day economic relation with other parts of the world mm-hmm. that has more impact uh, in some ways than, say, somebody from uh, a rural village in Oman taking a picture of mountains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I'm interested in here is how the Anthropocene interacts with this idea of, of nature. So we're thinking that, that now human, humanity has become this life-altering force on the planet. Then we can't think about nature and society as separate domains anymore. Mm-hmm. In fact, the Anthropocene proves the opposite, that nature and society are deeply intertwined. Mm-hmm. And that what we are doing now is just as much a part of nature as you know, the furthest far-off mountain peak and the most unclimbed mountain range on Earth. Mm-hmm. They are effectively intertwined. So therefore, what we're, what we're looking at here is the formation of new ways of looking at nature, new possibilities in the ways that we look at nature. Yeah, yeah. yeah talking about these, this intertwining of, of nature and society, and ex- especially the example that, that you gave of yeah, someone takes a picture of the, the mountains, the Alps, and then shares this, and, and from that position of power, it, it, it has like a lot of... Uh, impact mm-hmm. um, and you talked about climate change as well so are you looking at also the way that for example this could 
draw more people to the Alps, make it more of a tourist destination mm-hmm. and, and therefore kind of also a little bit destroying the, uh, mm-hmm. the natural environment there? Absolutely. And, and this is why I wanted to look at a context like Oman, because the transition that, uh, of people, first of all, engaging in outdoor activities mm-hmm. in nature, going for recreational purposes to the mm-hmm. mountains, uh, is much more recent than it is in this part of the world. This effectively recreating outdoors is quite a modern practice, mm-hmm. and it can really only be traced to the 18th century in certain parts of Western Europe. And yeah. the way that we see it now uh, through Decathlon or through all of these other popular companies where people want to buy these products and go camping, this is really recent in a place like Oman. It really began among the local population uh, within the past 10 years or so. So mm-hmm. the change has been very dramatic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of this change has been mobilized by the images and imaginaries, these these ways of thinking and relating to, to nature that have traveled through social media infrastructures. Mm-hmm. So effectively, people see a picture of uh, people hiking uh, on a mountain on Instagram and they see that as a high-value activity, something that not only brings some kind of emotional state of excitement, of fulfillment, but it's also an image that gets a lot of likes that people want to follow on social media. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this very attractive activity. Uh, and through that, and especially during the COVID period, Uh, where from 2020, the borders in Oman were closed for about 18 months, and people had nowhere else to go. They couldn't participate in many of the urban activities that are popular there, such as going to the mall. And going outdoors and taking up hiking and all of these kinds of outdoor activities that have been popular in other parts of the world Mm -hmm. for a very long time, uh, suddenly exploded. Mm -hmm. So in this time frame, we have the ability to understand how concepts of nature change through digital infrastructures. Uh, So much because the outdoor recreational boom has been motivated because of exposure uh, to certain images, certain imaginaries through social media platforms. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd like to talk a bit more about what exactly you did in Oman to study that. Mm-hmm. But maybe first, a question that I have, maybe listeners as well, mm-hmm. why did you choose Oman uh, specifically? Um, mm-hmm. uh, well, th- I suppose the, there's a there's a few a few reasons. Um, the first is that I'm very interested, and my, my previous research focused on tourism development primarily. Mm-hmm. So I'm very interested in places that are being new developed for tourism, uh, such as Myanmar, where I was conducting my PhD uh, research. And Oman has become increasingly popular with international tourists um, in the past 20 years, and especially in uh, the past few years before COVID. Just about this past season, winter season, is when you saw tourist arrivals returning to similar numbers uh, mm-hmm. where they were before before COVID. Uh, I was also motivated because of my uh, Arabic abilities. So I picked up conversational Arabic when I was living in Lebanon when I was younger, and uh, I wanted to be able to speak to people, and uh, I also probably felt a personal uh, just pull towards Mm -hmm. uh, working with this language again, uh, which I feel like was sort of unfinished. Um, And then also this is as a tourism destination, a lot of the interest, it's, it's in heritage and it's in nature. 
And particularly with nature, I grew up in Montana in the United States um, uh, in this area surrounded by mountains. So I, I suppose that was another sort of... Uh, uh, trigger. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Sel uh, more more self-involved <laughs> self, self -involved reason for, for, for looking at this as a potential research site. Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. So a bit more about the research then. Mm -hmm. uh, um, how... What are the research activities that you have conducted so far or, or that maybe are still planned? Right. So this is this is an ongoing ethnographic project. And I have sought to develop both in-person ethnographic practices, meaning that I've spent uh, about four months in the Gulf uh, up until now. Mm -hmm. And that time is uh, what might be familiar to other practitioners of, of ethnography. Uh, so spending time with, we would call them interlocutors, these research participants who are aware of your project and still want to hang out with you anyway. Um, <laughs> fortunately. Yeah, yeah, fortunately. And and, and that's been great. And it, 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 I first took, I first visited Oman in March 2022. Um, I was there about one month ago, I just returned. Mm -hmm. um, and I will continue going back and forth and working with people that, uh, who, with whom I've de I've developed relationships and who've been yeah. very generous to take me on board. And those interlocutors, mm -hmm. they are local people, all uh, not tourists, right? Or? No, so that that's that's a really that's a really good point I should mention. So so Oman and, and other Gulf countries um, is is characterized by a very high number of. Uh, migrant workers who are locally termed expats, regardless of their socioeconomic bracket. Um, so about 40% of people living in Oman are not holding Omani passports. Oh, yeah. um, so I think that probably my among my interlocutors, uh, people holding Omani passports, Omanis, are uh, more represented. Mm -hmm. um, however, I still also really... Uh, as somebody who's lived uh, around the world for a very long time, um, it's also really important to understand how this uh, transformation is taking place with the involvement of expats. So uh, focusing mostly on Omanis and uh, expat residents, mm -hmm. and to some extent I have spent time with tourists, but the for, for most recently I'm interested in how this transformation is happening among the people who live in Oman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... You spent four months uh, there, uh, got to know them, mm -hmm. but I guess that's not all of uh, doing your research there. So Right, right. So I have this in-person ethnography that, that mm -hmm. um, can only take place, of course, when I have the opportunity to go there. I mean, I have th these other academic responsibilities. Um, and, and meanwhile, I've been working to develop hybrid, or excuse me, uh, digital ethnographic methods. Mm -hmm. um, and digital ethnography is something that uh, people have been talking about, you know, for the past 15 years or so. Uh, and it can mean many different things, but it's a way of developing relationships with with interlocutors through digital means. Most of the networking with, with interlocutors I've done is on Instagram. And that's, again, because that happens to be the most popular platform uh, among people who, who spend time outdoors. Mm -hmm. Again, next to WhatsApp, because WhatsApp will always trump everything. Yeah. Um, but this has been incredibly productive, and it's a way for me to keep abreast of what is taking place uh, among uh, a wide cross-section of, of people living in Oman, uh, people who, uh, you know, are deeply involved in being outdoors, people who only go sometimes, uh, people who 
have nothing to do with wanting to go on a hike. But this is a way for me to not just sort of see the images and content that they're posting, but to uh, connect with them, you know, through direct message conversations, uh, through commenting on posts. Mm -hmm. um, but what I found to be one of the most enriching aspect of, and, and really important aspect of this digital ethnography is becoming somebody who is an active member of what we could say a network uh, is a networked public in Oman. And the networked public is one of these social science terms that basically just means an online community that recognizes itself as being somewhat connected. There is cohesion among people in this space. Um, so in order to become uh, an active member of this networked public, I have uh, not just interacted with interlocutors, but also posted my own content. Um, this is something that I do a lot when mm -hmm. I'm there. I basically just have a lot more content to post. Reels, I post a lot to stories. And that uh, has increasingly drawn more and more attention uh, that I think I wasn't quite prepared for and haven't quite figured out how to, mm -hmm. how to, how to, how to work with. And then I, I still try and, and, and maintain a presence when I am not an Oman, Although I admittedly don't post as much, yeah. uh, I suppose. But that means that as a researcher, you also are part of that community. Uh, does that in some way influence or change uh, the way that, that people are acting there? Um, or how, how does that, uh, why is that important for you? Let's, let's put it like that. Right, right. Uh, that, that's an excellent question. And I think it's one that people who take anthropological approaches to ethnography really wrestle with. Uh, inevitably, somebody who spends a long time with a community, which is basic uh, anthropological practice, ends up becoming intertwined uh, with the practices of that particular community. And I think arguably will influence the context no matter what. Mm -hmm. This can be through digital means, this can be through in this sort of very... Uh, "Quote unquote classic way of thinking about anthropology of going and living in a remote village for a year. Uh, in either case, you're going to influence what's taking place there. So for me, if I am, and and I've seen this, I've seen this in a few different ways. So one example might be I created a reel uh, after going out with an interlocutor um, on a trip in a particularly remote part of Oman, which people did not know about very much." This reel got more visibility than I would have an anticipated or, or desired, particularly. You know, I think it and it wasn't actually a lot in the span of Instagram. For me, it's a lot. Somebody who's uh, never really uh, had that many followers, but, you know, close to 4,000 views and then uh, I think 400 likes, this kind of a thing. So people saw it, and I had noted where this location was. Um, and this is a location that's not a, not a tourism destination, not a place that people go hiking. Uh, and then, you know, when you, when you note the location, there's an issue with geotagging, of course, because then that enables people to come to this destination much mm -hmm. more easily. They know mm -hmm. where to find it. They know what it looks like. It has some kind of value, specifically when you see how uh, the networked public has reacted to it, that it got so many views, that it got so many likes, and other people want to go see that view, but also take their own content uh, that will get those that, that, that kind of likes um, for yeah. their own profile. Yeah. So ultimately, I think that is one example of how um, this practice has some, some potential risks. And next to that, it's also the way that I see nature. 
mm-hmm. as somebody from my own very Western uh, upbringing. Um, and and when, when I present this way of seeing nature, one also wonders if that's going to uh, inflect the way that other people um, want to perceive these locations through their phone screens. Can you also share some of the results, if you have already some from your, um, yeah, some of your findings uh, from these activities? Right, right. No, that's uh, so. I'm, I'm. This is also very much in process. But there's a few points that I that I wanted to mm-hmm. highlight. Um, the first is that in this project, I've been able to identify ways in which the globalized Western formation of nature society has been transformed in particular contexts. So when people interact with this way of looking at nature as something that's exterior to uh, society, um, within uh, the context of Oman, you can also see ways in which local contexts and local concepts of, of understanding nature have uh, syncretized with these more global uh, perceptions. So this might be with regard to uh, Islamic conceptions of nature. Um, Also, uh, and this is something that I'm writing about at at, at the moment, but um, what in Arabic is uh, called amana, which speaks to a relation of stewardship and responsibility to the non-human environment, Mm -hmm. uh, to non-human species. Second to that, I, I think it's quite important to trouble the idea that social media somehow forms a false connection with nature, or a superficial connection with nature. And here I'm thinking about how, at least in, in, in Western cultural spaces, there is a vernacular and, and I think academic discourse that social media is toxic to mm-hmm. all it touches, uh-uh. that there is no good that can come from it, it is inauthentic, and there is quite frequent, uh, quite frequently in, in regard to how people interact with, with the outdoors, with nature, looking at people taking pictures and saying, ugh, you know, this isn't, this doesn't speak to a real connection with, with the natural environment. It's not like before yeah, when people just went hiking to go hiking. They didn't yeah. go to hiking to go take a picture. But what I think Oman points us to is a context where, at least among among the urban communities, there wasn't this practice of going outdoors for recreational purposes. There were people who were living in the mountains and who were who weren't necessarily hiking, but they were, you know, walking kilometers and kilometers, you know, 10 kilometers, 20 kilometers over very rough terrain because they had to go to the next village. They had some family business. They were trading goods. Um, And then in the city, people were not going hiking. They were, you know, engaged in very urban activities. Mm -hmm. However, since social media arrived, then there's been this big movement to recreate outdoors. Mm -hmm. So as it were, there wasn't this time, this sort of unimpeachable, uh, pristine time in, in the social imaginary before social media. Uh, when people were just interacting with nature only to interact with it. They were, they've always been going to uh, hike and, and, and do other out to, outdoor activities with the idea that they are also going to take content or, or produce content for social media. Yeah. So therefore, I mean, I think we really have to think about, like, does that just mean that all 
hiking and all outdoor activities in this kind of a context is inauthentic, is false. And I, I would really venture no, actually. I mean, we're seeing how, how digital technologies are helping people forge connections mm -hmm. with the, 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 the non-human environment and in ways that bring a great deal of meaning. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, they're also posting this content to Instagram, but at the same time, they might not be there outdoors if it wasn't for Instagram in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's interesting. So there's a more, you would uh, say, a more complicated relationship between the two, which could have both positive as well as negative aspects or consequences uh, in, in the way that people conceive of or interact with nature. Uh, yeah. So for the final part of our conversation, uh, I would like to uh, talk uh, briefly about um, what impact do you hope to generate with your research? Uh, how, how would you see a future society uh, with the, the, the knowledge that, that you have gained from your uh, research activities? So with this, I think it would be important to, again, return to the idea of the platformization uh, of, of societies in the Anthropocene. Mm -hmm what is happening when we are interacting with the world through digital infrastructures. And the first starting point, and what I think I can speak the most about now, has to do with attention economies. So attention economies are uh, speak to the concept that everything that is done on social media has value for the kind of visibility that it can, that it can uh, accrue. Mm -hmm. So a picture is only valuable if people see it and it gets likes. Mm -hmm. um, and people are constantly struggling to get more attention than their peers. This concept of attention economies is very well established, I think. And um, it indeed does characterize the kind of relationships and socialities that are formed in platforms like Instagram and, and Oman. So what do we do with this attention economy in, when, we're, when we're trying to consider uh, sustainable transitions? Um, one example that, that, I, that also comes from Amman is the way that people have sought to focus attention on this problem of littering, mm -hmm. uh, which is fairly common. It's, uh, it's more common there than it is in many other parts of the world. And that's because, um, you know, in, here in Belgium, we've been exposed to anti-litter discourses, this, uh, you know, do not litter, do not be a bad person and, and, and throw your trash in the ground, throw it in the bin. This has been part of uh, institutional and popular discourse for a very long time. Uh, in Oman, much less time has mm -hmm. passed. Um, you know, it's really just beginning to gain momentum in the past few years. So people are using social media as a way to highlight this issue. So what I mean by how attention economies impact the way that people think about sustainability is that when somebody takes a picture of rubbish on the ground, somebody who is littered, uh, and they post that on social media, they're definitely hoping for visibility. Uh, they're hoping to have that post seen and um, liked and uh, to maybe gain followers from this. But they're also hoping that people don't litter in the future. So that presents us with this question of what does it mean that uh, there's some sort of value attached to a picture of litter that succeeds within an attention economy? Mm -hmm. It has a value to it, a symbolic value, um, which means that it gets uh, more attention or more and more uh, 
people pay people care about this and they want to interact with this piece of online content. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, people look at attention economies as something that uh, it's a very negative form of relationality. Um, it's uh, again based on this idea of the inauthenticity of social media, and I don't. I'm not saying that it's the best way that's that we can that we can uh, mobilize for sustainable transitions, but I think it is also worth considering how attention economies can be leveraged mm-hmm. for sustainable ends. Um, and this does present a certain problem where, you know, there's especially in the literature on um, neoliberal conservation, uh, there's a lot of very important critique of how the market does not solve environmental problems that the market created. However, again, when we're, we're stepping back from, from this very um, more very different context that we might have here in Belgium and looking in a place like Oman, where attention economies are one of the tools that are available. So can they be leveraged uh, and, and to what impact to address an issue like littering? Mm-hmm. Um, or in the classic formulation, do the means corrupt the ends? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. I think um, uh, what you're saying, and, and I've heard that throughout the, the conversation uh, that we had, is that it's uh, social media, and, and now in this case, the attention economy is not per se a bad thing, or we can leverage in a way that also can create some good On the other hand, if I understand you well, it's not the only thing that, of course, we need to look at uh, when when we want to improve our relationship with uh, nature. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it, it can be part of uh, a global or or a, a bigger package. Uh, let's put it like that. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I think. Uh, What I would mean with with the focus on an issue like attention economies is in the long run, for social media to really be a part of a, what we could think of as a positive digital society, attention economies have to, there has to be a different a way of relating to mm-hmm. one another and relating to information on the web, merely than that which gets the most eyeballs. Uh, however, in the absence of willingness or ability to regulate these companies in such a way that would shape different infrastructures, how can we work with the tools we have in the meantime? Because mm-hmm. the problem of litter is something that's happening now mm-hmm. in Oman. Uh, and it's not likely that we can wait around for a different kind of social media platform that becomes popular that doesn't operate on an attention economy yeah. in order to use social media to act on this issue. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a, a very nice thought uh, to close our conversation with. Uh, and let's hope indeed that uh, we can, or through your research that uh, some positive change is, is being made in our relationship with uh, nature. And as we and saw that it's not nature versus society or civilization, but we are all connected, interconnected. Uh, okay. Thank you, uh, Sean, for a very interesting conversation. Thanks so much, David. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digisoc podcast, in which we share research and insights from the K. Leuven Digital Society Institute. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sean Smith about his research on how social media transforms the way we think about nature. His work is just a small part of a larger conversation on how we can create a positive digital society. Be sure to join us next time for more discussions with Digisoc researchers. Until then, stay curious and critical about the digital world around us.